The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point said I'm doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 79 is something like, what is the relationship between one thing and many things? For this discussion, we read the extant fragments of Heraclitus, guided by the 2011 book, The Logos of Heraclitus, the first philosopher of the West on its most interesting turn by Eva Brand. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at www.partiallyexaminedlife.com. I'm Dylan Casey in Annapolis, Maryland. This is Mark Lintonmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. And Eva Brand in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome. 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 Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure to read your book. That's a nice way to start. <laughs> I'm glad. I really like getting a face full of that St. John's magic that the, it's like I'm witnessing <laughs> firsthand what Dylan and Wes have only told me about, about exactly how far into, you know, I feel even us saying welcome to you that you're going to do an etymological analysis and, and it's going to be well <laughs> slash come. And that's going to be, you know, what am I, what are we really saying there? And, <laughs> and here I thought it was pure rationality. It turns out to be magic. <laughs> <laughs> so Dylan, why don't you, you and Ava tell us a little bit about what your relationship is and how you managed to orchestrate this. As everyone knows, I was a tutor at St. John's College starting in 2001, and Eva's been a tutor at St. John's since 1957? Yes. Wow. I had the great fortune in my very first year as a tutor here to have Eva as my seminar partner. Seminar is a big deal at St. John's in general. It's sort of the flagship course in which we all get together and have something like a conversation like what we have here on the podcast. And there isn't one tutor, there are two tutors per seminar, and usually something between 14 and 20 students. It's a real introduction for a new tutor, their seminar partner, learning about ways to approach the books. And for me, who had not studied philosophy and came in as a physicist, it was a real pleasant experience about reading books. I'll say I knew right away he belonged to us, so it was a happy year. That's all with the compliments. (laughs) (laughs) So you should know, Eva, that probably within the first month, there'll be eh, 50,000 downloads of the conversation that people listen to from all over the world. Very interesting. So that's kind of cool. And maybe some of them will buy your book. And maybe some of them (laughs) will buy your book. book. If I may, you guys out there should know that I don't have a computer. I told them that. I I told them that. (laughs) Yes, that you write your... With a pencil. Your books on papyrus with a (laughs) a chisel. On stone tablets, if I can get (laughs) it. Yeah. So, and you have a book coming out next spring. Next spring. And it's yesterday. I brought it to UPS. Weighed about three pounds, <laughs> and it's called Unwilling. Un and then hyphen willing. Mm-hmm. That turns out to be a dictionary word, which means undoing the will, making yourself less willful. Ah. Do we want to go through the rules or not? No. Let's just talk about the H man. 
First, why we didn't read a book by Heraclitus, <laughs> because there is no book by Heraclitus. Yes. yes. It has not survived. It isn't that it didn't survive. We don't even know if there was a book. It may have been some sort of collection, and it's referred to at one point as a kind of collection or composition. But whether it actually amounted to a book, we don't know. In fact, it's not clear just how much of it there was. I'm convinced that we have the most important parts of some aspects of what he wrote. It seems like his kind of dense, aphoristic style... If it were a book, it'd be interesting to see what that looked like. It'd be hard to sustain that as a longer narrative. It would look like a book by Nietzsche, you know, which are like aphorism. Exactly. I was just thinking, yeah. But I'm sure there were not that many, because there's some reason to think that, in fact, as far as the Logos fragments are concerned, we have most of them, the ones that deal with the Logos. But he seems to have been the inventor of this way of writing, that is to say, of writing in short pregnant, fragmentary-seeming sentences. Of course, he didn't write fragments. He wrote, I think, whole sentences. Some of them have come down to us as fragments. Yes, number nine, debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As opposed to someone like Parmenides, who wrote poetry. Who wrote a poem. Yeah. And there, too, of course, we haven't got it all, but we've got the major part of maybe even all of the first part, which was more interesting. Mm -hmm. The second part dealt with current astronomy and physics. Mm -hmm. The first part was his philosophy, and I think we have most of that. Just to set him in time, Heraclitus was 500? 510 yeah. is one date that's accepted. Yes. No, I'm sorry. Heraclitus earlier, 540. Parmenides, 510. Yeah, so 100, 150 years before Socrates. Yeah. Well, there's a Platonic dialogue in which Parmenides comes to Athens and talks to Socrates. Well, I guess I should yeah. say, yeah. say before Socrates died. Before Socrates died. Yeah. And Socrates is a boy, a kid, really, mm -hmm. in that conversation. That's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. And Parmenides treats him very, very nicely. <laughs> like a tutor. Yeah, yeah. yeah I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know if they know what a tutor is, so. We call ourselves tutors because we want to avoid, we don't want to call ourselves professors because we don't think of ourselves as dispensing authoritative wisdom and pouring it over the students. So the word tutor means guardian, right? And that seems to fit what we hope to be doing, which is to guard their learning and to incite it. I think Heraclitus would approve, right? <laughs> It's not clear to me that Heraclitus approved much of anything. Right. But I, I think if he had a preference, it would be for a tutor would, over, yeah. a pro over a professor. Yeah. Someone who professes as such might be objectionable. Yeah. Yeah. No, professor, he wouldn't have liked. In fact, he's got some fragments in which he really wades into what he calls people of much learning. Yes. He says don't yes. have much wisdom. Okay. One place to start with is pointing out Heraclitus's reputation is as the fire and flux guy. There are lots of fragments that are sort of in the consciousness of everything is fire, everything is flux, you can't step into the same river twice. All those are Heraclitus. Fire is true and flux is false. That's in your book. Yeah, that's in my book. Yeah. I don't know. When I think of Heraclitus, I think of oxen are happy when they find bitter vetches to eat. That's the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> That's the one you'd pick, Mark, to, to, to write your book on? <laughs> Most of us get to know Heraclitus through Plato and Aristotle, right? That's yeah. really our first encounter with him, and we get right. somewhat corrupted 
each of them has an agenda and they use him for their purposes there. Mm-hmm. So that's part of where the flux thing comes from. Yes, that's where the flux comes from. And sayings that I evidently, that he never said, like, you can't step into the same river twice. He thinks you can't step into the same river once when it comes to that. <laughs> and here's what seems to me a real misunderstanding. And I have a huge respect for Aristotle. But I think as far as Heraclitus was concerned, he just didn't get it. He's not the only one. But these people who reported on him a generation or two after he died, they thought that he had something to do with making harmony out of opposites. But it seems to me that he had no interest in harmony whatsoever. He was for head-on contradiction and strife and stress and war. And he thinks that that's what makes the world alive. Being againstness is what he's for, and not reconciliation. I think he used the metaphor of the two wrestlers who are in a stasis, but they're pushing against each other. Despite that antagonism, there's also something synthetic going on, right? The world is in some sense being unified through this process. It's a synthesis, which is not a melding into each other or a reconciliation with each other, but it's the synthesis of two opposites that abut on each other and doing so prop each other up. That's where the wrestlers are a really good picture. You know, they stand up because they're falling into each other. And I think that that's really what Heraclitus thought held the world together. I think modern readers are going to have trouble even with the idea that we are looking for a slogan or a central image or something to characterize the world in general. Is the world harmony? Is the world strife? That they want to know, well, what specifically does that mean? Are you looking at, we could give a Darwinist picture of fundamentally all the parts of nature are struggling against each other and that's what makes it a unified system? Or how would that even make sense if you're talking about physics? Yeah, well, there are some partial answers to that. For instance, Heraclitus is deeply interested in the force of tension, what it means Mm -hmm. to be in tension with each other. Where is the tension located? Is it in the terms of the tension, and and I was at the ends, or is it in the middle somewhere? That's a way, I think, of being in opposition and held together by opposition. He's interested in what it is that goes through everything, that is to say, that's present everywhere, in such a way as to make all things comparable. And he thinks that's fire. He thinks that there's a kind of fundamental matter, but it's not a material matter, that underlies all physical beings, and that makes it possible. That's the reason why physical beings have number relations to each other. In other words, it's why they're measurable. It's a number of things like that that make him be a philosopher of oppositions. Yeah, I think as Mark is pointing out, a lot of listeners will come to this confused and say, well, what is Heraclitus doing? What kind of question is he trying to answer? Is it metaphysical? Is it epistemological? Is it physics? And in a way, it's all of those things, right? Although it's, yeah, you know, he's, he's right. looking for some fundamental unified theory of the cosmos, this fundamental cosmological principle, but it will have a kind of explanatory power that really transcends these distinctions between metaphysics and physics and epistemology. And we'll, we'll see some of that as we get further into the discussion. That seems to me right. I think this is a question, or rather an understanding that he would have agreed to, that he's interested in whether rationality, the ability to answer to mathematical formulas, is imminent 
all comes from the outside. That is to say, whether the logos, the racial relation that obtains between kinds of matter, between times and powers, whether those are inbuilt and right in the matter itself, or whether they come from the outside and are beyond it. I think a modern physicist might be interested in this. In other words, does my ability to give a mathematical account of the world, does that come from some extra physical character that the world has, or is it right in the natural beings of the world? And if it is in them, where can I find it? Because by looking at it, you certainly can't find it. I always thought that that was a place where the physicist, as pure physicists, would stop. That scientific laws just describe regularities, and you don't ask, where does the scientific law come from? You might ask, is there some underlying feature that's causing this particular regularity? But in terms of just what makes things law-like in general, well, that's just taken as a methodological given, that if they were chaotic, then there would be no point in doing science to analyze them. And wow, we found that mathematical models seem to represent all these complicated physical phenomena. So that's just one of the paradigmatic assumptions that the scientist is proceeding on and yeah. not inquiring into itself. But they are looking for mechanisms, right? So a part of what particle physics is doing is trying to explain regularities in terms of lower level forces, including, interestingly, because of its relevance here to Heraclitus, forces of attraction and repulsion. So it's not that you just establish a regularity and then you can't go any further. There's some mechanism that you can find beneath that. And often that depends on these kinds of part-whole relations. And yeah. And what does beneath mean in that case? In other words, does it mean... In some way, governing the phenomena you're observing from the outside, or does it mean arising from within the phenomena that you're looking at? This makes me think of someone like Leibniz, where he has his whole world is turned, but in the end, it's turned from the outside. Anything that ends up being deterministic, those physicists end up having to have some beginning starting point. Even Aristotle, in some respects, you have the prime mover that somehow... Yeah. So it manages to have one foot in and one foot out all the time. It's never from within. It's a crank that's turned on the outside. The modern take on it is more that we will always look for an imminent structural, right? Just the example that Wes was giving, the lower level means the next smallest particles composing what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's myriological. It's part-whole relationships. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for it within in the sense of one particle breaking down into other particles, for instance with properties that determine the overall property of the larger particle. That means you're always dealing with emergent properties going upwards, and then it's turtles all the way down as far as the elements are concerned. Does that seem the case? Is this saying that we need a Logos to save us from that? First of all, I think he'd understand the argument that you've given. That is, I have the sense, though how do I really know? I'm just guessing that he would be able to follow an argument of that sort. But then he would ask, look, the level at which I'm at is the level in which physical substances, physical beings have number relations to each other. And those are transformational relations. In other words, they turn into each other according to certain numerical values. Where exactly in the pieces I'm looking at do I find the numbers. Do I impose them on nature? Does nature contain them? Or does some principle of rationality 
imposed them from beyond. I think he had his own opinion. He thought that what he called the Logos was a principle that imposed from beyond the capability for things in nature to have mathematical relations to each other. But I think he'd understand the argument that that's not right, that there is no principle beyond that imposes relations, but that it's somehow internal. Then he'd like to know what it is internally that makes that possible, and he actually has an answer to that. He thinks it comes on the one hand from the outside, from the logos, but on the other hand, every part of nature, whether those are substances or time relations, has a fiery basis, and fire is an analytical element which allows the natures in which it underlies to be numerically understood, that is to say, to have mathematical character. Because, as you know, the Pythagoreans faced the same question, and they thought that the answer was simply that nature was numbers and geometry, that is, not contain them or could be analyzed according to them, but really actually was numerical. What I'm trying to say is that I think Heraclitus would have understood the problem, but I also think he had an answer. But don't you ultimately conclude in the book that his answer is to say that the Logos is transcendent and imminent? Yes, that's really what I meant to be saying. It's the transcendent Logos, and it's the imminent fire, and the Logos and the fire have similar characteristics. Fire is analytic, breaks things up. You know, the etymology of the word, Analysis is breaking things up. Well, fire does that, and it's transformative, so that the world is one through transformations, one through many. So would his response to the argument that the organizing principle is imminent be something like, in order for that imminence to have force or be impactful, there has to be that transcendent element and that we're just not seeing it? Or is he making a sly move here and kind of co-opting and saying, well, my transcendence is imminent? One answer to the question is that one could say he waffles. I don't think he waffles. He means to be ambivalent here, that there is a visible element, namely fire, but there is an invisible element that is not specific, but that is absolutely universal, that has fiery characteristics, namely it has the characteristic of imposing a rational character on different parts of nature. So I think he'd say, the question you ask is one on which I mean to be paradoxical, I mean to be ambivalent. And the reason I mean to be that way is because that's the way the world actually is. He wants to put the logos behind everything or above everything, and then allow the logoi, that is to say the individual ratios, because after all, that's important to him, that logos means both ratio and speech and principle. So there's the super logos, that's a principle, a philosophical basis, and then there are the logoi, which are the ratios, the mathematical relations that he thinks govern all of nature. So it's logos outside and it's logoi inside. Can we throw out really what the word logos means and why? So in this book, you've made the case that really from now on in philosophy, we shouldn't feel the need to translate logos because logos has some important ambiguities that we should just preserve. We already are familiar with the term from all the kinds of uh, ologies 
pretty much any kind of science. So it has to do with knowledge, right? It has to do with, I'm giving an account of something. Even an explanation is logos. But it's also ratio is the Latin word for it. So all those rationality, all that stuff having to do with human mind is all logos. Folks might know that it also just stands for word and it's used in the Christian tradition as, you know, the word capital W, which right. is the meaning behind thing. And, and the way Heraclitus is using it is in that direction in, if you were just talking about not just the meaning of what somebody says, but the meaning in the world, the force that drives right. it to be the way it is, the underlying mm -hmm. pattern. Yeah, and I think this first fragment that you begin with, Eva, in your book, the listening not to me, but to the logos, right. that's a good starting point for us to get at what it yeah. means. Well, it could be a saying. To begin with, it's something that's being spoken or said, and then we get further associations from that. I think what you say is a good beginning. It turns up for Heraclitus first as a distinction between what I personally say and what it is I express in what I say, namely, not my speech, but what it is that I've heard, of course, in my intellect. He himself uses that word in Greek news. What it is that I heard there that I now translate into Greek and speak in ordinary words. And he's saying, it's not what I say, it's what was said to me. And what was said to me was said by the Logos. And the reason that Logos is so apt a term for him is, well, its most original meaning is to collect. In fact, you can hear that in the English word, which comes from the etymologically same word in Latin. So what the Logos does, first of all, is bring things together. But then in ordinary Greek, it means not only speaking, not only words, not only sentences, but it also means thinking. And as thinking, it's analytic. So on the one hand, it collects, and on the other hand, it analyzes brisk sentences that we have to be able to express, I think, the way he himself thought. Namely, he heard things that were truths, not arguments. He's not much interested. He doesn't argue. He sets out things. He brings forth things. But he also wasn't understood that's not me talking. That's the word of words or the thought of thought talking. We sort of address this in, for instance, in our Prega episode, we talked about Prega has sort of an ontology of thoughts and thoughts of what propositions refer to. But the thought isn't something that belongs specifically to me. Otherwise, right. it couldn't be a grounds for anything objective. Exactly. It's almost warning you against a sort of ad hominem reaction. That's exactly You know, listen right. not to, to me, yeah. but to my words yeah. or what I'm saying or my argument. But then to the extent that an argument has force, it ceases simply to be my argument. It's an argument yeah. in general. It can't be simply mine. It has to be yours as well. Yeah. Or in other words, as you pointed, it has to be something in common for it to actually have force. Yeah, and you can see immediately how those who weren't hearing his argument, who were hearing him speak, might say quite reasonably, that's what you say, that you are reporting the reason of reasons. But what we hear is you, Heraclitus, talking. So it's your opinion. And I can't imagine an argument that's more in the nature of our arguments than those. Mm. You know, one person claims to speak the truth, another person claims it's your truth you're speaking. Well, mm. this is, seems to me a very early example of someone who wasn't going to pull any punches about it. I'm speaking, yeah. 
But that's not what you're supposed to hear. You're supposed to hear the way it is. And why? Because I've heard it. And of course, I didn't make it up. It came to me. Part of that is that he's also claiming that it's accessible to everybody. It's not his diamond. It's not his personal voice in his head. Yeah, see, that's an interesting contrast with Socrates, in that Socrates says he has to follow his diamond, but it only speaks to him. That is D-A-I-M-O-N, demon. Yeah, it only says (laughs) negative things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've puzzled a lot about what that diamond is, and I, I think it's very much what one might call a conscience. Sure. Yeah. And the conscience is personal. It says you in particular should be doing this. But that's not what Heraclitus is saying that you should listen to. When he's listening, so. when he's using the word logos and you have to listen to it, he's speaking of somehow listening to the world speaking. Yeah. And I think he hears the world speaking in two kinds of logos. One is the mathematical relations. And there, there's something very modern about that, that all things are transformable into each other, that a piece of earth transformed into a jug of water, no matter how large or how small the piece of earth or the jug is, the ratio of relations remain the same. That's just, I think it's the insight of someone who was made to be a scientist. But then there's another relation that he sees in the world, which is that of the metaphor that things are to each other in relations that are not mathematical, but that are qualitative. And he thinks that that is also Logos that speaks to him. So he's not only interested in the deep mathematical constitution of nature, he's also interested in the phenomenal character, where things really are qualitatively different. So it seems to me that the Logos is double-sided for him. And it's also, there are points here, you know, your section on the wise thing. It also seems to be something like a divine presence or something like someone might want to call God. His language is suggestive of that. So what I sometimes call to myself the super logos, although Heraclitus wants to prevent us from giving it a specific God's name, though people call it Zeus, he does think not only that it is at work, but he thinks it's wisely at work. And I think there's something that has to do with his temperament and that he blames Homer, of all people, Homer who wrote an epic which is gory fighting for pages and pages. He blames him for being too conciliatory. He wants the world to be antagonistic. And I have a feeling that there was something about antagonism that really appealed to him. And I imagine that was personally hard to get along with. <laughs> but I don't know that. <laughs> I think he really thought that vitality was in battle. He has the fragment in which he, he says, if you harmonize everything, then everything goes away. It just becomes flat. There's no real world anymore. So there is a sense here that antagonisms, antitheses, oppositions are what keep the world vital. And there's a certain truth in that, it seems to me. Yeah, I think we we think of modern physics. What I think of here is the if there were only attractive forces in the universe, everything would just collapse into indiscriminate, let's say, I don't know if it would be black hole or, you know, it's this balance between there needs to be a certain amount of repulsive forces at some level. I take it at the subatomic level for things to 
maintain some sort of articulation, right? There's yeah, to, to be think. articulated means it can't just be one big indiscriminate soup. Things that's have to be stand out yeah. from each other. Yeah. Yeah. What echoed for me in talking about war, Ava, in your book was thinking about what we learned when we were studying the classical Greek poetry and histories and talking about strife and eros as being motivating forces. I thought more that, and this to me positions Heraclitus against Parmenides, is the idea that without something like war, strife, or tension, you end up with something that's just not chaotic, but static. That's what I think of when you say flat. Yeah, something blankly unified. Yeah, exactly. And I imagine, it seems to me not possible that these two people ever met each other, talked to each other. But imagine that if they did, this is what Heraclitus would have said to Parmenides. Look, we're both about the same thing, which is to find what makes things one and how manyness comes about. That is to say, how in the world, on the one hand, the world has a certain unity, and on the other hand, it has infinite variety, how these are related to each other. You say that only what is unqualified being could be said to be, and that everything else is simply appearance. Well, to begin with, appearance is also something, I think Heraclitus would say, and it's an appearance that the world becomes a world, and being is just a great blank nothing, as far as I can understand it. He might have said to Parmenides, what is this being that I'm not allowed to say anything about? I'm not allowed to qualify it in any way. It doesn't move. It doesn't have coloration. It doesn't smell like anything. Heraclitus had great faith in what you see and hear, particularly in what you see, because the hearing is internal, at least the way he presents it. He would have said to Parmenides, being as flabby, being as unappealing to me. I'm making this up, of course. I have no idea what they would have said to each other. <laughs> yeah, I wish there were a fragment with the word flabby in it. <laughs> <laughs> so Parmenides and Heraclitus would have been not good friends necessarily, but they would have been very good frenemies, yeah. which yeah, I think frenemies, is appropriate to that. Heraclitean way of looking at things, yeah. It's not yeah. clear to me, and all this, you know, speculation that Heraclitus was friends with anybody. There's stories, I've read fictions in which Heraclitus receives visitors, and he's nice to them. I can't <laughs> somehow imagine that. We're told at one point he actually went off to the mountains to be by himself, and the king of Persia invited him, and he wouldn't go. The most telling part of this is People wanted to be his followers. They were called Heraclitus mongers, or, and sometimes just Heraclitians. Well, it's so clear that if he had heard what they were saying and what they were making of him, he'd have rolled over in his grave, because there was something about him which was, oddly enough, highly particular, highly personal. This is one of the things that attracts me to him. He's, I think, the first philosopher who tried to explain what makes the world one world, and also a world of many constituents, on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's something so personal about him. He's kind of hard to get along with, pessimistic, harsh. You know, when he says oh, that Ephesians, his uh, fellow citizens, all the Ephesians should go hang themselves and let the kids take <laughs> over. Yeah. So it's oddly interesting, but 
it doesn't go anywhere because none of us have the faintest idea what it's actually like personally. But that's the way I imagine it. Well, it's certainly fertile ground for coming up with your own theories. Yeah, right. <laughs> How I led on this was, it seems strange to us now to try to come up with a metaphor to describe existence in general. But of course, that's what a lot of the old-timey philosophers did, and maybe he was the first here. But we can certainly understand it, like from the point of view of the physicist, that we're trying not to just understand particular causal mechanisms, but we're trying to get at, say, a unified field theory. We're trying to get to say why happenings on different levels of reality, we might say, different levels of compositional analysis, how those react in a similar way. And he's just trying to extend that all the way up so that you can even talk about politics, say, using the same, I don't know if you'd say laws, but the same logos that is the pattern within these different levels and maybe the transcendental force that's causing the pattern within these levels is going to be consistent up and down, this tension. Look, I want to ask you something. You think that in generally in science, anyone ever gets away from metaphor? For instance, isn't field theory a metaphor? Or string theory. Or string theory a metaphor or... The chief one is, isn't attraction a metaphor and repulsion? Yeah, it's a shorthand for a bunch of behaviors. Yeah. Isn't behavior a metaphor? People and animals behave, but nature doesn't behave. Mm. In other words, isn't science metaphorical from beginning to end? If one takes the words in a meaning that they once had rather than... I mean, you can always make a decree. This word is no longer going to mean... Mm -hmm what it once meant. Well, isn't that just the natural process of when you want to describe something that's not been described before, you have to use a word right. that is already in the lexicon. So, of course, it's going to have associations with something other than it is. But that doesn't mean, you know, unless people are etymologically minded, that they have in mind when they describe attraction and repulsion, something like human attraction and human repulsion. Even if that's the historical origin of the word, I don't know if you could say that when an ordinary physicist is using those terms, he's using them metaphorically. Well, I mean, take a word like force, though. Why not simply make up a new word, Mark? You could just add a new word to the dictionary. And, you know, when Newton is doing his three laws, he could use a word other than force. But what force does is it the word is related to something that we have direct experience of, right? We know what it's like to push something and feel resistance. And that's supposed to, to some extent, inform our concept, even though we want to define that concept ultimately mathematically. We don't want to get away from entirely some intuitive notion of what it means for something to resist and for us to push and so on and so forth. I think there's a reason why you simply don't make up a new word. You hold on sure. to Sure. Well, then you'd be Heidegger. You'd be... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'd be really irritating to everybody around you. <laughs> but why, why would that be irritating? That is, if that's how we people really acquired these notions, namely as having no relation to the human metaphors or the economic metaphors that might be used, why should they be irritated if you get rid of the words and have a symbol instead? And there must be some residue which makes the learning of it possible. We mm -hmm. feel like we understand it less if we do that. A lot of times when you get in discussions in trying to understand what is being meant in science, it is the residue of 
the way in which the words are used non-technically that call out associations that might not be met. And so you have to spend time explaining what you didn't mean that you naturally would have thought of because you used that word. The metaphor has its limits. You can't draw every, you know, yeah. simil- you can't choose any similarity willy-nilly and say. Yeah. That's right. And, and you see the same thing, like, for instance, when you say opposites attract, Gilbert talks about magnets and he says, magnetism, the opposite kinds attract or in with charges, opposite charges attract. And you can make that statement about the physical world and then make a kind of other mistake about taking that analogy to everything else and saying, well, all kinds of opposites attract. So immediately start talking about human interactions and the opposite kinds of personalities. Well, of course they attract because that's the nature of the world. Opposites attract, whether or not that's actually true or not. If it is true, it's interesting. But you're right. It's a perilous thing to do to extend it. Yeah. Yeah. And if it were true, it would be true for completely different reasons than facts about magnetism. Well, that's a question, though. It's another case of using a metaphor and extrapolating it to saying this is what's true about the world and making an extrapolation to another kind of metaphor that leads to, in this case, I'm pointing out the way in which it leads to confusion. But I think the same thing is true where you end up having things like potential energy. When you talk about potential energy and trying to sort out what exactly you mean by that and where that potential energy is, and if something has energy, what do you mean by that? Is it from within, or is it something that moves it, or is it something that allows it to be moved? Yeah, I can see where one might make an argument that you're better off not getting hung up on those questions. No, and in fact, um, we had, I don't know, it was probably five or six years ago, Freeman Dyson came and gave a lecture here. One thing that everybody wanted to talk with him about is Freeman Dyson is a physicist. He probably should have been awarded the Nobel Prize, except for the fact that it was only limited to three people at the time. He sorted out how Richard Feynman and Shinero Tamananga and Schwinger's different field theories were really the same thing, that they really were all equivalent accounts of quantum electrodynamics. So here, um, when he was giving his talk and then just going around, taking him around to labs and wanting to talk to him myself, wanted to ask him you know, what he thought about quantum mechanics and interpreting it and, you know, questions of wave-particle duality. What are these entities, these wave functions and stuff? And he basically didn't want to have anything to do with it. He thought that that amounted to a kind of loose talk trying to interpret what a wave function was, that you ended up just making mistakes because what it was was what the relation was in the mathematics. And it was not really to be interpreted as an entity. So therefore, he would sort of wash his hands of any of the metaphorical discussion, calling it a wave or calling it a particle or any of those things. He would say, you just go down a road of implication that's just not there. So all of the confusions about, is it a wave? You end up talking about water waves and all other kinds of things you mean by waves. And you say, well, that's not what it is. And you say, well, is it a particle? He says, well, no, it's not a particle. It's this entity that admits of these mathematical relations, and that's what you mean by it. So he would take the make-up-a-new-word tack, that you have to just talk about something different. And when you try to reconcile whether it's a wave or a particle... It's nonsensical because it's not either of those things. Well, I took something away from that lecture, Mm -hmm. which I'd never thought of before. Remember, he approached the question, 
whether you could make an experiment to see if they were gravitons. Yeah. And he said that there are some things in physics which you can, in principle, not find an answer to, such as, in some cases, the velocity position of mm -hmm. either one or the other, but not both at yeah. once. He said this was different because it was not an in-principle impossibility, it was a practical impossibility, because you would need an instrument larger than the Earth to make the experiment. And so there was nothing in principle to make allow you to make it. There was something in fact and circumstance. And this was a really new thought to me, that there might be impossibilities were, were simply human impossibilities, not logical, physical impossibilities. I find this very interesting, that there might be a limit to what we can learn, which have to do with the practical limitations on our time, our matter, I mean, after all, we can't get off the Earth. <laughs> Experimental particle physicists, a lot of them feel this way about string theory, in that it offers no predictions about how the world works that are detectable. And so claims about how the world is that are undetectable seem yeah. like so much talk about nothing. Yeah, so in one case, it's that you often know a way to falsify Yes. The theory. And the other case is that there's no possible way to build the instrument. Yeah. But it's very strange that limitations should come from the outside, as it were. Mm -hmm. I want to bring exactly this point back to Heraclitus, which is you point out a lot of places in the text where he wants to settle on, I don't know if you use this word, but a, a stable ambivalence. We brought this up earlier in the discussion. So, for instance, fragment 32, the wise is one only. It is unwilling and willing to be called by the name of Zeus. And that's another way of asking, is the logos, the principle that underlies everything, is it imminent or is it transcendent? And is it personal or is it impersonal? Right. There's another thing about the oracle at Delphi. It's on page 23 of the book, 90, fragment 93. The Lord, whose is the oracle at Delphi, neither utters nor hides his meaning, but it shows it by a sign. Maybe some of his habit of making these double entendres comes from this tradition from the Delphic oracles saying things that you could interpret one way or the other way. And that's not a matter of hiding meaning. It's not a matter of showing, but it shows it by a sign. A sign is something that's externalized, it can have more than one meaning, whereas when somebody actually says something, you assume that they have a singular meaning in their head, even if you don't know what it is. It's not a stable ambiguity, it's an ambiguity of epistemological ambiguity, that you just need to ask the person again. But you seem to be saying that a lot of Heraclitus's sayings are not like that. It's not that you just need to get Heraclitus in front of you and ask him to disambiguate what he's saying, that they are meant to be ambiguous in exactly this way, and that's supposed to be helpful. That's supposed to actually be pointing out something about the logos, about the stable ambivalence in nature itself. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. You know, I, I really was, when I was thinking about this, trying to figure out, is it even coherent to say there's a stable ambiguity in nature itself, or is it just a matter of your epistemological position versus things? So, for instance, one of the examples that we've brought up in several podcasts is, is there a true self that individuals have? Or when you are finding yourself, are you really creating yourself? This is a good candidate in our everyday psychology that is a good category for a stable ambivalence in that you just can't know. 
what you can know is sort of the art of creating yourself and discovering what you really want and that there's a lot of techniques for doing that and getting to know yourself better so that you can do that. But it doesn't ever resolve the issue. Was there something in your nature that you are discovering or is it a matter of this activity of searching is a matter of creating something? And it doesn't matter for practical purposes. So let's just say that's a stable ambiguity. Is that a good example? You know, what you said in the beginning seems to me to bear on that when you mentioned an epistemological position. One way to understand the notion of a stable ambivalence as a perspectival notion. Look at it from one point of view, and this is how it is. Look at it from another point of view, and the opposite is the case. Then have the kind of intellect that is capable of holding both of these perspectives in view at once. And not only living with it, but finding some meaning behind that. This I find very attractive. The notion that if you allow yourself to take two perspectives, you may and will often get direct antitheses, and that such truth as we can reach consists of allowing both of these to be alive in your intellect and then to find some way to deal with it. It seems to me it must mean that you can't utter the ultimate truth of one or the other side, but you have to live exactly in between them. So you might argue that it is more of a prescription for being human than it is a way of saying what is the truth. But that doesn't seem to me to be a bad way out of a hard situation. Did I say that clearly? Yeah, and I liked in your book how you emphasize, so this is referring to something like Fragment 61, which the translation I have in front of me is, the sea is the purest and the impurest water. Fish can drink it and it is good for them. To men, it is undrinkable and destructive. And this is taken to say that Heraclitus, and he has other similar things that he says, that he's a relativist of some sort. But the way that you had talked about perspectivism is that it's not a matter of relativism like, ooh, depends on your point of view. The facts will change. Like, there is one unitary fact of the matter here, but the fact of the matter implies different things about fish and about people. So it's not a matter of loosey-goosey relativism, but it is a matter of you have to have a fixed point In order to have different perspectives on it, there has to be a fixed fact of the matter. So he's not a relativist in that sense. Which means that this way of looking at it is really an admission that you may have to give up or you may have to declare the answer a mystery that you've got a project, which is to see what that stable background is from which, which allows you to have different viewpoints. One could claim that there's a good way to phrase the problem. I don't really want to argue that Heraclitus would have gone as far as we just did, but I think he would have said that he does have a name for the answer, even if it isn't an absolutely clear one, and that the name for that answer is exactly that there is logos and that it's a word for a number of different functions. Maybe we can say what you lose by emphasizing the oneness. Because Logos for Heraclitus is about a one thing, a fact of the matter, as Mark was saying. When you go towards emphasizing oneness, what is it that you're losing that you don't end up in the end just recapitulating again? Going back to the sort of the one versus the many, I mean, one of the tensions there is that as soon as you start talking about many things, 
you end up then needing to talk about how they're held together. And so why isn't it that when they're being held together, that's just another one thing? It's related to this distinction that you make in the book about the relationship between fractions and numbers. And when I understand a relationship in a fraction, a one to two or a four to a five, and then I understand, I, I turn that to a number. I collapse, collapse it. it. I yeah. collapse it into a number. Yeah. And there's something about not doing that that's infuriating. You're going through, you say, well, of course it's a half, and a half is a number. And what distinction am I making that really amounts to anything by keeping it as one to two? And I think it's a very hard yeah, thing to get your head around. One answer to that is that half is not a number, right? I mean, that's a word Point five. for partitioning yeah. something. So half might be the wrong word. Yeah. But as Mark just said, point 0.5. Point 0.5 is a number. Is yeah. a number, yes. Yeah. By calling it a half, I'm preserving the ratio aspect. But by calling it point 0.5 or point 0.7 right. or something like that. What is it that you lose by not immediately saying, well... There might be relationships amongst things, but what's really at issue are the relata themselves. The relations don't matter nearly as much as the relata. And in fact, the relations that they can have come from those individuals themselves. It's not really between them. Yes. It comes from them themselves. So, yeah, Which you lose the moment that you turn the ratio into a number, right? That's right. Yeah. You, you lose that. And so I think one response to Heracles... So you lose... Everything in the world that has color and sensory impact. In other words, the ultimate collapse is the Parmenidean collapse. Yes. When being has no characteristics of any sort except being one. One way of getting around it would be to say, well, I have the uber one. But to get to individuals, I would then talk about how each of them partake of being a one thing. And then the fact that there are relations, there are differences between them, have to do with how their internal being bumps up against another internal being so that their relation is not born out of something in between them, but, but is just born out of them bumping up against one another. But no sooner have you said that, then you've shown that the uber one was never a one because all its contents were qualified individually. You see what I mean? It does seem to be a distinction then between what you mean by invoking a relation between them, that maybe it's a third option. I want to call it Parmenidean, not in the sense of it being a overarching one, but in that each of them partake of their own individual being. Now, I understand that Parmenides would say that, well, there is a single one of them. But look, here's a question. If you have that desire to allow beings to be what Aristotle would call substances, mm -hmm. which means having their own individuality. Yep. Then you're out of the realm of science, or not. Why do you say that you're out of the realm of science? Because you need to have a one thing with respect well, to... Well, they yeah. need to be universals. You and me need to be the same as far as matter. Yeah, so I mean, in the end, if you're going to have any kind of measuring at all, you have to have a measuring with respect to something. And so there has to be a way in which you yeah. are able to relate all the manys to a whole. And this is what I thought that Heraclitus was in search of. On the one hand, there's the fire that has that particularity that you're talking about, that individuality, that it's a substance. On the other hand, this is, as always, on the one hand, on the other hand, right? There is the fire that is the destroyer of such individuality, the analyzer, 
the reducer of everything, the transformer. And I think that Heraclitus thought he needed both of those. He needed a world of qualitative difference, and he needed an underlying activity, which was like a kind of matter, which would give unity to the world so that it could have fixed relations. So in speaking of it both ways, then you're calling attention to the fact that in a relation, you have things that are related. So a relation would mean you have broken it apart. It's not a one thing. But in being a relation, it is a one thing that has... Well, it's a question of whether it's a piece of something they both have in common or whether it's individually different. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I mean, in that that you have two relata that are distinct from one another. But together, they in their having a relation, that relation is a one thing. Right, yeah. Which is the way I think human beings, when they talk of their relationship, they mean yeah. something that arises out of their individuality. That's where all the trouble begins, right? <laughs> That's I mean, right. out of that fact. Right. Well, and certainly the relation itself, just to tie this back to his alleged process philosophy, is not a matter of just the individuals and the characters they have. And it has to do with particular actions that are taken. And so the relationship between two individuals, there's not even a relationship there unless there are actions moving it forward. And you might even say if two people haven't seen each other for a long time, then they don't have much of a relationship anymore. It's purely a past relationship, etc. And it, that seems like that is something that is generally going to be the case. You know, he has some aphorisms about the kind of drink that is only still when it is moving. It is only the kind of thing that it is when it is actually churning about. And that seems to be a general picture of all entities, that entities arise out of action, arise out of relations. So are you saying that the relations themselves between two entities that have their own character, in order to come out at all, would have to include motion, change? Some kind of dynamism, or else how do the two things relate? I guess you could talk about the corners of a square that I've just drawn on this table. Yeah. Like those corners have a relation to each other, but really is there, would you pick that out as an entity, that relationship between those two corners? That's not a stable entity. Right. In general, we think of relations as involving one thing, altering another in some way, having an effect, transferring motion. Right. But it seems to me that Heraclitus had that in mind because he thinks that these tensions can snap, things fall apart and come together in a new way, and then there are these transformations, and presumably they don't happen instantaneously, they take time. Incidentally, one of the interesting things about the Heraclitus is that fragments we have, and there's no mention of time at all. But it's perfectly clear that he talks about summer and winter, so he's thinking of temporal relations. And it seems to me that means that he thinks the relations are agency of change. Hmm. This part of Heraclitus resonated most with my experience with modern particle physics, that you have things that genuinely go from one thing to becoming another. So radiation is an instance of transformation that is not one of something just breaking apart into more pieces and then coming together into other pieces, but one thing, say, radioactive atom, becoming another thing. There may be conservation of certain pieces, but it's not like when a, a muon becomes an electron and a electron neutrino, that that transformation is the electron was a, inside a bag of a muon, right. that it actually transforms into that according to 
our account is so this part of real business. real novelty in the transformation yes. yes and that aspect of it seems clear in Heraclitus that you would have that possibility even though there might be fixed relations between the inputs and the outputs after all water fire earth and air are his and the ancient physicists elements they were only four so that if one turns into the other it's a really qualitative transformation mm-hmm. it's not coming apart and coming together in a different way or getting something out of the one and to the other it's not a rearrangement the thing that heraclitus despises the earlier so-called physicists mm-hmm. physiologoi as people give an account of nature for is that they pick some super element something that appeals to them like water he hates moisture you know he thinks that's <laughs> disgusting some like air all the physicists pick their favorite element and then that's the underlying element and all the others are transformations of it and get back to it and he thinks that that's not right that this simply privileging one element as being the element and the others turn into it and out of it in the way you described So you were saying that he's not doing that with fire. Yeah, that, that that's he, right. He clearly says the visible fire is not the same thing as this right. underlying substratum yeah. that transforms into the other thing. Yeah. And I like in, in your book, you compared it to how Descartes talks about extension. Yes, yeah. You say, as fire remains ever living in everything through its transformations and relates all things by making them measurable, which we should talk more about why fire is measurable, because that's not going to be clear to people. But so extension is the primary pervasive property of all body, for Descartes. And each limited body is a thing stretched out, not a being in or over space, but a spatial substance, a being of space. From its spatiality, it derives its measurability, as the elements do from fire. Yeah, that struck me as being a true analogy. So how do we get measurability from fire? Yes, Wes. How do we do it? You had an etymological reason for that, Eva, I recall, that there was dissolving the fire was... Maybe you can reproduce that for us. Yeah, and analytics. Yeah. But wait a minute, what's the question? How is fire analytic? How do we get measurability from fire? I think if it is similar to extension, it's because it is an element that is in itself, well, you might call it self-analytical, self-dissolving in such a way that it can be found in every other element as a kind of sub-element, which works its way through the different elements and makes them measurable. That is to say, divides them. So it's like a common denominator, right? For one thing to stand in relation to another, they have to have something in common. Yeah. Truth to tell, I wasn't very clear about it. After all, I made it up. I'm not so sure. (laughs) (laughs) In the section you call it solvent fire, you point to fragment 90, Say, for fire, everything is an exchange, and fire for everything just as for gold, money, and for money, gold. So you end up talking about the way in which it ends up being like coinage. Yeah, currency. Yeah, that's a great analogy. That makes sense because currency had just come on the scene when Heraclitus was a boy. He had currency, we have the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But currency was good hard stuff. (laughs) Those of us with computers have the internet. He has a lot of aftermath, mm-hmm. which might be worth saying something about. Lots of people had picked up fragments of his aphorisms 
from other sources. The whole book or whatever it was was lost fairly early on. But they made of it what they liked, especially the Stoics used Heraclitus a lot. But I think without really trying to understand what he was saying, it was just convenient notions. But I think, and people may think this is plain kooky, but I became really convinced of it, that Madison's 10th Federalist is pure Heraclitianism, even though I have no evidence that Madison ever read Heraclitus. And this is the way it seemed to me. That newspaper article said that although it would be nice if we were all at peace with each other and cooperated, the fact of the matter is that for the world to be vital, people have to have interest groups. And interest groups invariably are in conflict with each other. They butt up against each other. Well, Madison thinks this may not be the best way to run the political world, but it's a very energetic and vital way. So he says, kill factions, which is his name for an interest group, and you will kill liberty. Factions are the principle of vitality in a free country. And this seemed to me pure Heraclitus, and quite apart from whether he ever heard, well, sure, he heard of him, but whether he read him or not. Yeah, you talk about this on, this is on page 120 of yeah. your book, and you lead into that with talking about this idea that a relation of mutual assertiveness or antagonism is necessary for something even to be what it is, because it, it has to be what it is by asserting its independence against something else. It sounds like within a republic, the happiness of the individuals within that republic depend to some extent on this factionalism and this sort of warlike relation. And, you know, you also mentioned Adam Smith's Invisible Hand and those other sorts of related kinds of ideas. Yeah, so that seemed to me both what Madison thinks and what seems true to me, that the energy, I can imagine a very peaceable, harmonious political regime. The Europeans call it social harmony. But isn't Heraclitus partly right is when he says that when you have that, everything, as he puts it, goes away. You're sort of left with, I like this word, flabbiness. <laughs> <laughs> when we think of a totalitarian regime, you think of removal of distinctions between people, right? That's really one of the goals. Yeah. So both a kind of tyrannical imposition and a universal sweetness and light are not conducive to the world's vitality. That seems to me to be true. Yeah. So America should not be a true melting pot. No. <laughs> with all of us meaning undistinguished. It should be a mixing pot, but not it a melting pot. A stew. Look, when I came to America, I was 12. And the melting pot notion was still in force then. But here's what people meant by it. They meant on Monday through Friday afternoons, we were all polite, civil Americans. And then we went home, and we all became highly ethnic. And what's more, we didn't like each other very much. <laughs> not, not in Brooklyn, where I grew up. And it seemed to work. <laughs> well, that not liking each other very much, which is what right we're allowed to do in families. It's a, that's yeah. the healthy assertion of our individual right. differences, right. which Madison seems to be saying is really necessary to our happiness. That expression of aggression or of those sort of negative tendencies, yeah. So the children might be squabbling among themselves, but to the parent, they'll recognize that that's natural and good because 
according to Fragment 102, <laughs> to God, all things are fair and good and right, but men hold some things wrong and yes. some right. <laughs> that made sense to me. See, if the Logos is really Heraclitus' divinity, then it should make sense that the collecting version of the Logos applies to the Logos as a whole, that in the Logos things really are collected in such a way that the opposites each have their virtue and are value. If the Heraclitian god is the Logos, then it makes sense to me that to the god, both sides should look equally good, because they're both necessary. This is something that occurred to me while I was reading this, this collecting function of the Logos, and this goes back to Legain and the collecting up and the counting, and it's part of, right, this function of speech and thought, this sort of synthetic function of putting things together. Someone might say there seems to be an erotic function there. There seems to be eros at work there. Someone might object, well, despite his emphasis on strife, isn't there covertly two principles at work here, one eros and one strife? And to get things sort of, they're held together, but at enough of a distance to maintain their individuality and distinctness, they don't collapse into this soup. But on the other hand, they're not simply blasted out to opposite ends of the universe, or they don't become completely unrelated by strife. So... Someone might say, well, isn't it better to think of the universe as more in the way that, say, Empedocles would think of it as involving both strife and eros and just the right balance between those two things? Well, isn't strife itself is different than disgust? Oh, strife yeah. is you have to actually be together competing for the same thing or in the same space or somehow in order to be in strife. Like the image of the wrestlers. It's not just repulsion. Something has to bring you together. I'm thinking of attractive and repulsive forces, and that may, maybe that's not the way to think about this. Couldn't one even go so far as to say that for Heraclitus, eros and strife have to be to some degree the same? Mm. And, you know, I don't spend much time doing this, but once in a while I find a wrestling match on TV. <laughs> if you look at it in a certain way... It looks very peculiar. <laughs> In other words, it doesn't look like strife. It looks like love, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hector Macho Camacho will kill you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very well choreographed, but yeah, sometimes it's hard to tell love and, <laughs> and the hate apart. It's hard to tell apart, you know, sex and violence sometimes. <laughs> Ava saying that reminds me once something somebody told me about, do you guys know Klimt's The Kiss? Yeah. The famous painting, which is oftentimes held up, you know, as a sort of art deco erotic masterpiece of some sort. And somebody once told me that they were there with a tour of children and one of the kids asked why the man was hurting the woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at it with a different set of eyes, it actually looks yeah. more like violence than a passionate embrace. So it goes both ways. It could be an antagonistic sport that looks in part like lovemaking and lovemaking that looks in part like war. But in both cases, that seems like the stable ambivalence is epistemological, that we don't know. It's not the case that it is in itself. Like they really have intentions, at least. I'm not sure what you're saying, Mark. We're talking about the collecting function of the logos. Yeah. And in some ways, it's talked about in purely epistemological sense that we can understand the world. We can bring everything together. We can try to come up with a law that will describe everything. So that makes the unity of everything not metaphysical, but an epistemic matter. Well, for Heraclitus, though, it's metaphysical. 
It's a metaphysical solution to an epistemological problem. It seemed to me that Heraclitus would say, epistemology, nothing. This is the way it really is. Right. Antagonism and love, and love and antagonism. So, for instance, and this is on page 28 of your book, you say, I think Heraclitus was the first Westerner to ponder how thought and world come to jibe. A logos that we can hear must be the designer and the design of the world. And that kind of epistemological solution, we see, you know, one of the things we're most used to is the Kantian solution, which is a lot like that. It attributes the synthesizing function to individual minds. It says, how do we account for objectivity? Well, the same principles that are constructing the world, it's the same thing in a sense that's doing the constructing and the analyzing. And then you get someone like Hegel who says, well, no, now we have to depersonalize that and say it's not any individual transcendental ego but spirit as such. And I think also Her- the Heraclitian instinct is to depersonalize, right? It's to say the synthetic function is not someone's mind doing the constructing. The logos is out there in the world. So that's why I say a metaphysical solution to an epistemological problem. Sure. And it would only be findable in the individual insofar as the individual is a part of nature. And so you could introspect. Is informed by logos. Yeah. yeah. Right. You could yeah. introspect and find the same patterns you would find by extrospecting (laughs) I mean as far as the epistemological side of it is concerned there's no way of getting around the fact that it's Heraclitus who's talking and that he makes no effort not to sound like himself and it's very hard to find an author who expresses himself more as an individual than Heraclitus does that's the epistemological side of it I Heraclitus am hearing this and you, the Ephesians, or whoever else is reading this book, probably don't hear it, though you could if you tried. So the epistemology isn't a theory, but it's a personal attitude. You have to listen, is what it says. Mm-hmm. And have a dry soul while you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> dry souls, yeah. So that you can be properly kindled. You know, I love that about dry souls. I know some soggy souls, and I know what he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, souls smell in Hades. (laughs) So I hear from Fragment 98. I did want to ask, one of the themes in the book was talking about thought being common, the, the whole notion of the common. And I think Wes touched on it early on. Did we do it justice? Sure, let's talk about it. When Eva was talking about it in her book, the idea of a common, somehow the notion of the common ties into the notion of thought, or at least reason, that all men or all human beings have the ability to use mind or use reason to access the common, something along those lines, and that that's what, Wes, you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, you talked about that in order for all men to be able to hear the logos in a certain sense there has to be some kind of faculty that we all have or mind which allows us to hear the logos and that this ties into the notion of the common and heraclitus name for it is mind okay i mean he mentions he loves these puns and xunnoi sounds almost like xunnon xunnon means common and xunnoi means with mind He uses the pun twice, and it says exactly what you were saying. I have page 22 of 139. Therefore, one must follow what is the common, 
but although the logos is common, the many live as if they had a private mind. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> and as you say, there is a riotous triple punning here. Would you like to elaborate since I won't deign to try to pronounce the Greek? Well, one of them is the one I just mentioned with mind and common. They simply sound the same in Greek. So, Xenos and Xenoi. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's also with anexatoi, honor apprehending. Yes, exactly. From the first fragment. Yeah. So he's got puns on common and mindfulness. And I think what he means is just that the logos speaks in one voice to everyone, mm-hmm. speaks about things that are common, that is to say that run about through the whole world, namely speaks in terms of logoi which have we found in pervading the world. And then there are human beings, namely the wet souls, the soggy ones, who just don't listen and who go to sleep. And when they go to sleep, then there's nothing common anymore. It's all private. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying we could if we would, but we won't. Right. And that it's important that in a certain kind of way, speaking of puns, he's being democratic, but not... (laughs) Like yeah. <laughs> Democrates, that the logos is common means that it's the same logos for all. For all. And what's more, that he also says that everyone has the mind, the noose, to apprehend it. And if you don't, that's because you're inert or drowned, drunk in some way, or asleep. So there's nothing elitist about this, except in this peculiar way. And that's actually a question I want to raise. There's something to me so strange about being first. I think it's impossible to say who thought of something first. There may have been generations of Homo sapiens who had glimmers, but Parmenides and Heraclitus really are the first ones to say this. So Heraclitus finds, on the one hand, he thinks we all have the ability and there is something common to be learned by a common ability that we have. On the other hand, he is the first. There's something so strange about someone thinking a thought which has to do with the commonness of the world for the first time. I find this somewhat poignant, puzzling. It seems to me that it's poignant and puzzling in the way that discovering and creating are confusing and puzzling together, you know, whether it be in artist or a physicist or any kind of novelty in the world, is that novelty born out of creating or out of discovering? And maybe the Heraclitian answer is the one I'm most sympathetic with, which is it's both at the same time. And Mark talked about this earlier about do we create ourselves or do we discover who we are? And I think that's a great example of the tension there that we really do both. And it maybe serves us to think about both those activities maybe individually, and then recognize that we are doing them both at the same time. Yeah, I think you must be right about that, that this is a a strange position that anyone who's thinking of something novel is in. But so much has accumulated since he wrote. Mm -hmm. He was so closer to a real beginning that there's something really strange. And what really got to me was the way that Raphael paints that into the school of Athens, that there's this really strange-looking wild man sitting away from everybody else, 
even looking away from his writing, not communicating with anybody, yet he's the one who's writing about the commonness of the Logos. This seems to me to be the Heraclitus that I read into, I say into. I was going to mention that it's suitably paradoxical that the opposite of the common right is to be idios or private, where we get our word from idiot. So it might seem like, you know, being separated off like that, he's out of touch with the common. But to the contrary, that probably has something to do with him being first. We can relate his curmudgeonliness to his firstness. Yeah. Because he can be more open to the common in some sense by being away from the crowd. And then by being in the crowd and listening to others, you can be more idios than not, right? I think that's right. The other side to that is... What he says, you know, that is so wide that the locust can't reach to its ends, which says to me that in being relatively isolated, and certainly a curmudgeon, and in being, I think one could fairly say, the first philosopher, certainly the first we know about, he gets it out of himself. That is, what he mostly consults is his soul. Mm. And what he finds in that soul is, among other things, an image of the world as it is governed by the Logos, and others of a Logos-governed universe. So what could say that the isolation has something to do with the hugeness of what he regards as his own consciousness? In other words, has both something to do with his position in history and with his psychological understanding of himself. This has to be the point where Mark is reminded of phenomenology. I was about to say <laughs> that yeah. this is the difference between if you're going to take a contemporary take on this phenomenology yeah. versus what is called experimental philosophy. I hadn't thought of that, but that's absolutely right to use, among other things, the first phenomenologist, <laughs> since he is interested in the deliverances of consciousness. Is that what you were saying? Yes, yeah. I, I feel no need to go into what experimental philosophy is and why right. it's bad. You can look on the blog for that, <laughs> listeners. Seth bitching about that. <laughs> but just the, yeah, the idea that looking in introspection reveals something general. It's not just my thoughts right. that are available to me. It's something about thought in general that's available to me. If you have a dry soul. Yes. If you have a wet soul, that doesn't reveal anything. <laughs> Moist thoughts. Moist thoughts. <laughs> Moist. That's a good name for a book. That's a PL book. Maybe not a philosophy book. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of book would it be, Dylan? Well, would it be like part four of like Dark Shades of Grey or something uh, like that? It could be that, or it could be a self. It could be a self help book. I think. Yes. But. Okay. <laughs> Heraclitus speaks of sort of the way things are, so he isn't prescriptive about how one would be receptive. So he says that you need to have a dry soul, which you have to be a kind of listener. You have to be capable of being spoken to. And he says that. Yes. You have to absorb. Yes. But he doesn't seem to talk, refer to anything about how one would cultivate that listening or how one might dry out their wet soul. And Aristotle would speak of something like that, how one would develop the habits of right. kindling and your soul. And stuff. Socrates, who, as opposed to Heraclitus talked to everybody right? <laughs> a lot, has a lot to say about how one goes about becoming thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's right to say he has nothing to say to. He has no one to say it to. It's unclear to whom he's talking. He's not talking to his fellow citizens. 
Mm-hmm. It isn't known that he had any direct pupils. I mean, people who knew him and look, and it's hard to imagine that that would have worked. Whom is he writing for? Well, when you said earlier, I had not heard this before, but that he had been invited by the king of Persia mm-hmm. to come. So that to me tells me, and the fact that we have his writings, is that it's not like he's exactly a hermit. He might be a private man in some ways, but there's something public about him that he wants to get this out and that he might be curmudgeonly and grumpy and difficult to deal with, but he also is somehow out in the world. He's a little bit like the difficult actor to deal with. Yeah. You know, you have an actor who's always a pain in the ass when they're on yeah. the set, and, yeah, but, and but you still want them there. Yeah. And part of that is that that actor also, in some ways, wants to be there, too. Do we know anything at all about we know, what kind of public life he would have had? Didn't he leave his book in the temple like yeah. to be loaned right. out? Like, that's how people know. Oh. It's said that he deposited it at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. I don't know if that's true or if it's... Oh, okay. And his father was an officer of the city. I forget what. So he... Oh, there's always rich guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't live... He wasn't born in Iceland. Yeah. We don't know for what kind of wisdom the king wanted him. Mm-hmm. I mean, what he saw in him. We don't know much about him. Yeah. It's not clear who he would have passed on such techne or arts of how to be a philosopher. But Socrates, we know that he talked to the young, mm-hmm. by preference. With Plato, we know that he wrote dialogues which were distributed. In other words, he wanted a public. Which public would... Heraclitus have looked for his own Ephesians he had absolute contempt for. So who was it that was not contemptible and could have learned? Well, the priests? No, I don't think so. Well, maybe he, uh, following your suggestion that you see echoes of Heraclitus and direct discussion of Heraclitus and Nietzsche, maybe Heraclitus was writing for the future generations who could understand him. You know, there's definitely a prophetic tone When you say that you're being spoken through, that's the mechanism of prophecy, not the mechanism of philosophy in the strictest sense. That's exactly right to me, that the depositing of the book, which I've forgotten about, indicates that there's something oracle-like about it. And of course, the aphoristic style of expressing oneself is oracle-like. And that means he was hoping for a great public. The interesting thing is that the one reporter of more aphorisms than come from any other book was someone who fought Christian heresy. So Heraclitus ends up embattled with the Christian heresy, namely that the father and the son are identical. And I think this is a funny fate for him to have. The legacy, I have a feeling that he would have been horrified by it, where as Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics were all taken up in an orderly way by people who read them, may have misunderstood them, but tried to understand them. This was nothing but mangling. And it makes certain sense to me if one supposes that he wasn't too clear himself about whom he was addressing. I mean, Logos was speaking to him. Was he in solo conversation with Logos? Didn't you point out a couple of sections where it sounds like he's pointing out, even though he says, compared to God, man is like an ape or something like that. He says a few things negative about human nature, but he also seems to have some positive right. things to say about our connection to divinity. 
there's this 119 that I see in the version I'm looking at is man's character is his yeah. fate. But I think you had, you had given a different explanation for that. His, his character is his divinity, something with the word. Daimon. Ethos is his yeah. daimon. Yes. Do you want to elaborate about anything positive that he has to say about humanity, which could he point does, out who the audience for this is? I mean, as we've already pointed out, he says everyone has the ability. In other words, he doesn't think that human beings mm-hmm. aren't endowed. He thinks they don't have the dryness. Yeah, they're not, li- they're they're not listening. It's not that they can't. Listening. It's not that they don't have ears. It's that they're not listening. You know, it surprised me and sort of gratified me since I think of myself as sort of terminal egalitarian as far as matters of intellectual are concerned. No, in other words, everybody can if they want to. I found Socrates generally has a reputation for what's called elitism. In the very book from which that reputation is largely derived, The Republic, I discovered a passage in which he says, every soul has in it the instrument for learning. It's very much the same point of view. Everyone could. But I think if you convince yourself that everyone could, you might that much the more despise the fact that everyone doesn't. (laughs) 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 Closings? I'll start and I'll say again, I really enjoyed reading it. And part of the enjoyment was just that we get here this sort of sustained interpretation of Heraclitus. You've written basically an essay. And I think from what I remember from grad school, especially with the pre-Socratics, it's fairly dry, speaking of dry (laughs) scholarship and people having sort of very narrow debates. So it was nice to read something so engaging about a pre-Socratic. What I was most engaged by was this question of, again, it's kind of the epistemological question, but the question of what it is that makes the world intelligible to us. I like this idea of this logos, this principle, which in part, at least, it's a principle of intelligibility. It it says why it is that we as human beings can know anything about the world, because we're sort of formed by the same principle as the world itself. There's a sort of mindedness to the cosmos, which means that individual minds aren't simply these radically different cut-off entities from the world. So I like that kind of unifying explanation. I enjoyed it as well. I think somebody who's not as steeped in St. John's might find it a little harder than you three that are, in that I was enchanted by the treatment of these aphorisms at the beginning of the book. When it got 30, 40 pages in, it felt like, oh, this is still going on. But I really did appreciate the way it came together and found this much more rewarding than just looking over the fragments themselves. And then I found there's an audio version of a translation of all the fragments a LibriVox recording so podcast listeners can download and listen to that. And after reading this book and then listening to those back, it was so much more meaningful to me because I could hear one and say, oh, there's translation issues with that. That's not saying exactly that. That really was a fascinating, really a sales approach uh, to this whole philological, etymological project of analysis, which is something that just has in general turned me off ancient Greek philosophy and the pre-Socratics specifically. So this was a significant point of growth for me. And I feel like I want to do some Parmenides and some other things like that now, thanks to this. So that's good. I still find myself wondering when I come out of this, there's a lot of suggestive things, but how much of this was interesting for purely historical reasons versus reasons of, of philosophical interest? The reason I say that with a snide tone is because whenever I make that distinction in the past, Dylan always jumps on me <laughs> that that's not a legitimate distinction in the first place. So I'll, I can let him go off on that. But 
even for historical purposes, the fact that in this book, Eva, you say that Heraclitus came up with a version of the law of conservation of matter this far back. Like, that's really cool that he could do that. And if he's really the first one that came up with the idea of a unified metaphor to describe everything and that that became what philosophy was for so long, that's great. As far as how applicable are these things to any modern thinking or, you know, my own philosophical ideas, we talked briefly here about applying metaphors to all these different levels of analysis and how usually I think that's an example of where philosophy goes horribly wrong, where you take something about physics and say, look, human society is just like that. I want nothing to do with that. But on the other hand, what really intrigues me is you described how a lot of commentators on Heraclitus, they take the paradoxical statements and they apply modern logic to them and they try to unravel them and show how this is not really a paradox. And you had made a passing comment somewhere in there that this might not be a, a matter of Heraclitus hadn't yet discovered the law of non-contradiction stated as such as Aristotle stated it, but that there's something going on here that's lost to us in the moderns. And I'm not sure how to take that, but it leaves me uh, interested. Well, this is Seth. I'll go ahead and give my closing. First, I want to thank Eva for really kind of giving me a way to access Heraclitus or the corpus of Heraclitus as a unity. He's kind of in a lot of ways just been a name and a set of quotes to me and not sort of a living historical figure, even though we've talked about him. For example, we did an episode on Heisenberg and Heisenberg went to great lengths to talk about how Heraclitus's idea of fire was a lot like the modern physical notion of energy. And so this was a refreshing, non-imminent counterpoint to that. <laughs> but I appreciated you making clear the idea that it's not an epistemological enterprise to talk about, for example, water being both good and bad, salt water being good to fish, bad to people, or everything is good to the gods, but man has decided that some things are good and some things are bad. It's not simply perspectivalism, but really it's a metaphysical principle of this idea that tension and opposition or tension and pairing is a fundamental structure of the universe. And I like that because unlike Mark, I love metaphor and <laughs> I love the idea that we can live in a space and in a philosophical system where there is no foundational element or the idea that if you try to boil everything down to a single thing without a relation or without relata, that it ultimately falls apart. And in some sense there, you see the seed of what ultimately becomes the Derridian or postmodern enterprise of trying to do deconstruction on the philosophical tradition that tries to find the one word or the one idea or the one concept that's going to ground everything. Also, this greatly informed my understanding of Heidegger's philosophy, both directly and indirectly, I guess. Guys, if you didn't make it into the footnotes, she has a very nice footnote where she talks about reading Fink and Heidegger's seminar on Heraclitus and saying, it appears these two men have done a lot of intellectual heavy lifting, but to what point, I'm not sure. Something like that. <laughs> but if Heraclitus was the prophet of Logos, then Heidegger was the prophet of being. And there's all sorts of ways in which Heidegger starts off more Parmenidean focused on being, and then in his later works is looking more towards language. And in a lot of ways, his idea of what language is or does is very similar, I think, to how Logos functions for Heraclitus. And they both love the idea that things neither hide nor reveal, but signify like the oracle. And then lastly, I just wanted to say that I appreciated your short discussion about how Heraclitus fit into the Hegelian system when you were talking about the legacy of Heraclitus in the yeah. Western tradition. 
as a sort of good, but ultimately not fully developed version of Hegel himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I felt the same. I thought I understood Hegel better after reading this. No synthesis. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Only thesis and antithesis. No, they never reconcile. Nope, you just get stuck there. Just on a personal note, I hadn't spent as much time with Greek in a long time, and it was a pleasure for me going through. I went and copied them down in Greek and uh, worked on them. So it was just a lot of fun that I hadn't had in a while. But it is, the book is in English. The book is in English. I should say that, in fact, even you don't even have to know any Greek characters. The thing that I kept on coming back to in Heraclitus was something that Eva developed in the book about the way in which he seems like a first scientist or proto-scientist in a way that I find utterly recognizable. The problem becomes alive, and especially in a long treatment like this, thinking through what that's like, that was it for me. First of all, I want to say that I maybe I shouldn't say amazed, but I am a little bit amazed and highly gratified by the fact that the four of you really read the book. <laughs> Some, <laughs> even the footnotes. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Then I have two confessions to make. I've never in my life before talked to three people whom I couldn't see. That's novel to me and a little disconcerting. <laughs> Actually, we're all computer programs. We're not even people. We are generated by Dylan's laptop. Did you know that he could do that? The second confession is that I've never had a long conversation about the book with anyone. My very appreciative colleagues keep saying we have to talk about it. <laughs> There's never time. I want to say two things in particular that I gathered from the summaries. One is that there's a real problem one has to deal with, even if it's a nice and believable discovery that he was a kind of proto-scientist and what it is that all the aphorisms drive toward. It's still a question that was raised, I forgot by whom, whether that isn't a purely historical question. Mm -hmm. That is to say, it's very nice, but how does it matter? So I'll confess to yet another thing. I had an agenda, and the agenda is to get time out of thinking and to show that it doesn't make any difference when you live. People can talk to each other. Heraclitus can talk to us and we to him. So the way of detemporalizing, I guess one could say, philosophy and philosophical conversation, that was behind it. So my first answer to the question, why isn't this purely historical, is that I meant it not to be an account of something that happened a long time ago, but a way of leveraging Heraclitus into contemporary times. I also want to say that as we were talking, I kept asking myself, did you make this up? Is this sufficiently argued? And I think the fact of the matter is some of it I probably made up, and lots of it isn't sufficiently argued. <laughs> so there's no way of getting around that. But another question that arose in the summaries was, what good can one get out of it? That is to say, what does one learn that is of life-enhancing value? And to me, especially after a weekend of meeting with members of the board and my own colleagues, <laughs> this, this is a real value. The notion that the world is in a kind of vitalizing antagonism with each other, understood in a more radical way, then it has been understood by anyone that I know of since 
paracolitis. That turns out to be so useful when you're dealing with difficult issues. And what I mean by the radical way of understanding it is that heraclitus really means precisely not trying to compromise us to harmonizations, but to be together by reason of being opposite. In other words, that there is a way of togetherness that preserves opposition and values it, not insofar as you can reconcile it or find some compromise, but precisely insofar as it is the way of the world. That seems to me very valuable. And it, I'll tell you one particular value. It puts you in much better humor with your colleagues. <laughs> yeah. And the key is keeping that in mind and not allowing strife to degenerate into annihilation. Yeah, and, that's and, very important. Yeah. It's got to be the strife that holds each other yeah. Otherwise, yeah. the strife goes away. Like the rafters of a roof. That's yeah. his own yeah. metaphor. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Next time, we are going to be talking about Heidegger, about his essay on humanism from 1949. Folks should go and read some follow-up information about this and related topics at partiallyexaminedlife.com. We've got a Facebook group. We've got a Twitter feed. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
you straight. 